Hello and welcome to Public Health for the People with Dr. Amber. My name is Amber Schmidtke, and we will be talking today about trends in Georgia for COVID-19, how they fit into the national context, and then also answer one frequently asked question. Okay, so this will be looking at the trends in Georgia over the week of the 16th through the 23rd of August. So just keep that in mind if you're listening to this in the future. Last week, we saw that testing was down, both in terms of total counts as well as percent positive. Um, We are still above the 5% goal for the state. And so we still have some room to, to improve there. Case growth is slowing, although it is still increasing. Last week, we saw just under 17,000 cases over seven days and just under 86,000 cases over the past four weeks. That sounds like a lot, but it's actually less than what we saw last week when looking back at recent history. Statewide, there, as of Sunday, there were 253,959 cases, which means that just under 34% of the cases reported to date were within the past four weeks. That sounds big, but again, this proportion is getting smaller, and that's a good thing. What it shows is that our case accumulation is slowing compared to the acceleration we saw in June and July. However, our case rate per 100,000 is higher than the national average for every county type in Georgia. For example, Atlanta, Atlanta Metro, non-rural and rural, but it is highest among rural counties. And that can sometimes be hard to wrap your mind around if you're in a rural county and it, you know it, you have a small community and you feel relatively isolated compared to the rest of Georgia. Um, it may be hard to see the way that it's impacting rural communities without that you know, sense of numbers. Um, but it's important to remember that this is not just Atlanta's problem. This is something that is impacting all areas of the state and especially our rural counties. Uh, the new cases are most common among those 18 to 29 years of age, so our young adults, but more broadly, the entire working age population. Um, so those ages 18 to 59 are the majority of our new cases. For hospitalizations, current as well as new hospitalizations are decreasing relative to where they have been with the June and July surge. And that that sounds really good. It looks really good. However, it's important to keep in mind that there have been efforts recently to preserve bed capacity by treating and monitoring some people through telemedicine. You know, they send them home with some blood pressure monitoring equipment and a doctor checks in with them daily from the hospital. Because those people are never admitted, they are off the books. And so we don't have a way to see those people in the data from the state, and we don't know to what extent that that is impacting our current hospitalization numbers. So I would just warn that this is kind of like when I grew up in Colorado, there was an effort to, you know, cut down parts of the forest to protect homes so that, you know, fire couldn't spread to them. And we always worried that, you know, yeah, we'll go ahead and do that now, but eventually people are going to build homes in that space um, and we're just going to have to cut down more forest. And so I just want to make sure that we're not preserving bed capacity just for the purpose of refilling it. Um, That should not be the goal at all. Still, we're definitely not out of the woods. We still need to continue to limit our exposures as much as possible. In addition to decreases in current and new hospitalizations, we are also seeing that adult ventilator use is beginning to decrease, and that's certainly a good sign. We still see a few hospital regions with less than five ICU beds, and of course, 
that is going to be an important resource for those who are most severely ill with COVID-19. Um, and unfortunately, those areas with few ICU beds are also the areas that are most heavily impacted by the 14-day case rates per 100,000. So they're feeling intense disease and they don't have the bed space potentially to deal with it. Hospitalizations are most common among those ages 50 to 79. For deaths, last week uh, there were 430 deaths, and over the past four weeks there were 1,634, and that is a new statewide record. Statewide, the total at the time on Sunday was 5,132, and what that means is that just under 32% of the deaths that Georgia has recorded so far took place in the last month. The death rates for most county types in Georgia are below the national average, which is 54 per 100,000, but rural counties are above the rate at just under 70 per 100,000. So rural Georgia, once again, is being disproportionately impacted both by cases as well as deaths. Of our deaths, all of the pediatric ones have been in males, and 80% of them have had an underlying condition. There is roughly equal distribution between male and female for ages 20 to 39. Males then predominate ages 40 to 79 in our deaths. And then because of differences in life expectancy, women overtake men in terms of the proportion of deaths for those 80 and above. With respect to race, African-American or Black populations make up the majority of deaths up to age 69, and then it shifts to white populations making up the majority. Of course, deaths increase with age and that is reflected both in total counts as well as case fatality rates. If we look at how Georgia fits into the national context, starting with testing, Georgia is only achieving 34% of the testing target to control this pandemic, according to the Harvard Global Health Institute. And we are ranked 38th in the nation for our efforts. For cases, the Western hemisphere is disproportionately impacted by the disease and the United States is trending poorly, ranked among several developing nations. Within the United States, our hotspots are concentrated in the South and in parts of the Midwest where it is starting to grow. Georgia is ranked number four in the nation for new cases per 100,000 over the past seven days. That more or less agrees with the Harvard Global Health Institute, which ranks Georgia number three for average daily case rate behind Mississippi and North Dakota. And 93% of Georgia's 159 counties are color-coded as orange or red, which means that they, the Harvard Global Health Institute recommends or, or suggests that a uh, shelter-in-place order is required to bring disease transmission in the community down to a level that testing and contact tracing can add adequately track and monitor the pandemic. When you over when you overshoot that, when you're overwhelming that capacity, it's really not unlike running up a credit card when your checking account is out of money. You are to quote from Top Gun, you are writing checks that your body cannot cash. And so you don't want to have that situation where you have more disease than you can cope with. For hospitalizations, Georgia is ranked number one for COVID-19 current hospitalizations. And we're not just number one, we're number one by a large margin. So 26% of our beds are occupied by COVID patients, and the next highest state is Mississippi with 17.2%. So while hospitalizations are going down, and we should certainly be happy about that, um, we still remain exceptionally high. And so it's important to, again, don't 
let up. Don't start taking more risky behaviors, thinking that things have gotten better. The way that we keep this spike that we saw in June and July from happening again is by continuing to be very cautious about disease transmission so that we can hopefully get this under control and it's manageable for our hospitals and everything else. Okay, so for deaths, the national context is that um, deaths are still growing, but not quite as much as for the week prior. We are still quite high for the death rate per 100,000 in the past seven days, especially for Georgia. In fact, Georgia is ranked number seven in the nation, and the South is heavily represented in the top 10 states for death rate over the past seven days. We hold eight of the 10 spots. So this is definitely not a contest that the South should want to win. these are preventable deaths. These are people that we are giving away to the disease. Excess deaths um, are something that I've talked about before. And what this looks at is total deaths that have taken place over time relative to previous year's trends. And they continue to accumulate for Georgia as well as many other states. And usually I refer to the CDC's excess death tool for looking at that. The New York Times has gone a step further and actually provided a a quantity for each state. Uh, For Georgia, over the span of time from March 15th to August 8th, they found that there have been 5,700 excess deaths as of August 8th. So again, that's 5,700 more than we would normally experience for deaths. And that's only just looking at a five-month window of time. And as of August 8th, the DPH official tally of death was 4,713. So that's just about a thousand less than what the New York Times is reporting. So that could be that we're not properly capturing and and identifying all of our deaths as COVID deaths, or it could be things that are tangentially related. So things like suicides or other things that are um, related to the social isolation that goes with this pandemic. So we'll take a pause for a moment while I reset and collect my thoughts to think about our frequently asked question for this week. Okay, so this week, the deep dive is really just a frequently asked question. And part of this is because I am moving this week from Georgia to Kansas. Um, Before anybody freaks out, yes, I will still be looking at trends in Georgia. Georgia is home in many ways. I've grown up as a bit of a nomad, but I've lived the longest in Georgia of all the places that I've lived. My children were born here, and so it, it will continue to be home for probably most of my life. So I will just really kind of just talk about a frequently asked question this week. And next week will probably be a week off as we are getting settled. But I look forward to coming back and talking about how the move went and what it's like to move across the country during a pandemic um, as a public health professional. Uh, As you can imagine, there's a lot of anxiety that goes with this. So hopefully everything goes uh, as smoothly as it possibly can. The frequently asked question today is that we're going to talk about is recoveries and why in the world isn't Georgia looking at recovery data when it comes to COVID-19. And there's a couple of things I want to talk about here. So what it requires for a person to be tracked as a recovery is that our contact tracers would need to be able to follow up with those individuals through the course of their disease until they have reached recovery. And that is problematic for a couple reasons. First of which, 
is that our contact tracers are understaffed and overwhelmed. We have more disease transmission than our contact tracers are able to cope with and adequately monitor. So they don't have the bandwidth or capacity to keep track of patients through their recovery. They are more focused on notifying people that have been exposed to prevent future infections. Other states are able to do this work because they don't have the disease transmission rates that Georgia does. So just keep that in mind that we we have a workforce problem and a disease transmission problem, really. So that is not really something that Georgia can provide. I will say that if you're looking at other resources that look at recoveries, whether that's the Johns Hopkins uh, coronavirus tool or Worldometers, I know does this too, just keep in mind those are estimates. They are model predictions of how many people have recovered. It is not based on hard data. So just understand that it may not be the most reliable piece of information to track. The second thing is that's problematic about tracking that recovery is that this is not a binary situation. You don't just either die or get better. There is a third path that is happening here, which is people who are called long haulers, people who are recovered technically, meaning they didn't die. However, they are experiencing severe decreases in their quality of life. We have marathon runners who may never run again because of severe lung damage and and cardiovascular damage. We have people that have experienced strokes. We have people that still can't taste or smell. We have people that, I was listening to a, a story on NPR this week where they were talking about how even being out in the sun is very debilitating for them. I think we can all agree that just because you have survived does not mean that you are okay. And so I I would caution you against getting into the idea that this is a benign infection where you either survive or die. There is that third way. And so that's why I think it's it's probably not correct to try to track percent rec- or numbers of recovered people. I know that it pro- would provide a lot of hope. However, it's important to remember that just like with polio, which paralyzes people, we can have people who survive, but their quality of life is nowhere near what it was prior to infection. And so I would just, just keep that in mind. And so I think that kind of summarizes why there's problems tracking things in such a way. The other thing to keep in mind is that this is kind of a phenomenon of this pandemic that people are wanting this information. In infectious disease, we really don't track recoveries in this way. Um, So for most epidemiologists and people in public health, when you ask for that information, they're sort of going to have a puzzled look on their face, sort of like, why do you want that information? Um, Because this is not something that we typically do for any other infection. And mostly because we're very, we're trying to be as proactive as possible and save lives where we can. And so this feels like a distraction. That's not to say that it's not worth noting if we can, and I applaud the efforts of other states that are doing that. Um, But I would also encourage those other states to show what that third path is and how many of their people are experiencing those long-term consequences of the infection. So I think that wraps it up for today. Again, remember that, you know, I won't be here next week. In fact, the the Army who is hosting us at our next location is going to make us shelter in place for 14 days when we arrive uh, coming from Georgia. So I will have plenty of time to uh, get you up to speed when it comes to Georgia and the national context. Uh, But that will happen in about two weeks. So I'll be off next week. Be safe and be well. Make good choices. And we'll talk soon. Bye-bye.